Welcome to the Gen Z Stoic Podcast, where every week we strive to lead younger generations on a path to virtue through the insight of Stoic teachings and personal stories from our lives as Gen Z Stoics. Welcome to this week's episode of the Gen Z Stoic Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ren. And I'm your co-host, Mateo. And today, we will be discussing 13 things uh, stoic concepts or stoics um, or Latin phrases that we deem to be overrated or underrated or appropriately rated. It's basically a Gen Z stoic review of stoics. This is going to be very interesting. Yes, our brief summary of these stoics and followed by our rating. It's always good to evaluate the sources that you are reading from. And I, I think we should start out by saying that while we might say that some things are overrated, all of the things we're going to talk about today, every single individual and every single concept, I believe holds some value to a practicing stoic. So us saying that something is overrated isn't by no means disparaging it to the point where you, you shouldn't read it. It's just maybe prioritize them less, read them after you've read other philosophers who we think are personally better, more influential. But with that being said, Let's get it started off with the father of Stoicism, which is Zeno of Sidium. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go first here. Zeno, to me, is overrated, and here's why. He gets the appropriate credit for starting Stoicism. But outside of that, I think if we look at a lot of the teachings of Zeno, case in point, just last week, we looked at the concept of love and how Zeno had a kind of a based or something opinion of love that was completely completely opposite to what a lot of other Stoic philosophers followed up with, and I think that there are more moments that we can see that. And so, while I, you know, I we really do credit Zeno for starting the school of Stoicism, and I think he gets his flowers for that. I think anything past that that he gets is why I would rate him overrated because many of the teachings that he used and taught other Stoic philosophers like Aurelius or Seneca um, or even Epictetus completely said the opposite or something that just completely disparaged his teaching and made it irrelevant really to the school. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the big example was, and I didn't really realize this until we talked about it on the Valentine's day episode, but was the example of love, uh, like his perspective on it. And I would also agree. I think he is overrated. However, the founding of stoicism was probably one of the best things to ever happen to the world. So like you said, you have to give him credit for, you know, founding the school of philosophy. The whole perspective on love that he had was, it kind of threw me for a loop because it was pretty much against what every other Stoic would argue. So I think, yes, he should be credited for starting the school of philosophy. However, some of his other, you know, um, ideologies don't necessarily align with where I'm at with Stoicism and a lot of the other Stoics. But that's a good segue into Marcus Aurelius. Now, it's going to take a non-biased um, analyzation of Marcus Aurelius here, but I have deemed Marcus Aurelius to be appropriately rated. I don't think he is underrated or overrated. He's pretty well known by most people. I think Meditations is one of the more popular books about Stoicism, especially for beginners or like people who are new to Stoicism, which is great because it's really a fantastic book and really just a fantastic way to sort of immerse yourself in Stoicism without it seeming like too much. It's a very easy read as well. 
Um, and I would say I don't think he's overrated because I have yet to find a Marcus Aurelius concept that I truly disagree with. There are times where, you know, I'm reading meditations or I'm reading another one of his works where I'm like, okay, what do you mean here? But usually, and what I found this to be is um, sometimes the context in which things are written, I have to understand. Like, remember when we were talking about when he says, throw all your books away? And I was like, well, that's stupid. Books help you learn. But what he was really talking about was throw out things that distract you is more of like a metaphor. Um, yeah, I think Marcus, and I know for me, he's changed my life as uh, a practicing stoic. So I would rate him appropriately. I think he's getting what he deserves. Um, but he's definitely not underrated because he's very well known. I'm similarly going to go with appropriately rated. You'll likely notice that we don't deviate much from our opinions, but appropriately rated bordering on overrated Marcus Aurelius. I really appreciate. He is um, really the face of stoicism to people who look at these ancient stoics because of the fact that he held the emperor position and was a ruler and really gave stoicism a platform, which is something that we can greatly appreciate. My, my kind of issue, if I had to pick, really nitpick one with Aurelius is that when you look at his works, it's not necessarily where he's teaching stoic concepts, but like meditations is literally just his journal. It's his journal that he kept. And yes, there were teachings in it, but I think that context is sometimes lost is that this actually wasn't, I don't think meant to be like a teaching tool. It was when he's out in battle, he's writing these things down and he's remembering stoic things that he's learned in the past and these stoic concepts and he's he's writing them down recall them and i think that's a context that's sometimes lost but marcus aurelius definitely had a lot of good teachings even though that wasn't maybe the intention and he also brought a lot of fame and attention to the school of stoicism which was fantastic and really i think inspired generations uh, of romans and then further down in, in civilization to become stoics and practice these teachings and i think if there's a model of if you're a man of what you want your life to look like and how you want to live. I think Aurelius is a very good figure to do that. And I think he's appropriately rated for that reason. So continuing on, we're going to go to my favorite stoic ever Seneca, who I can not rate anything but underrated Seneca. The things that Aurelius has done for you, Matteo is what Seneca has done for me. I was telling you the other day, this is the fifth time I've read through Letters from a Stoic, and this time what I'm realizing is that Seneca is very, very similar to me, very similar to how I act. Um, if I was living in ancient Roman times where I couldn't just text somebody, I definitely would send like 150 letters to my friend telling them, hey, this is how I'm living life. How are you living life? This is how things should go. And Seneca's style of writing, I think, is so beneficial to the school of Stoicism to where it is his most influential work. All, I mean, really, all of his works are letters, and they're all something that can be picked up, read like one, like four-page segment, and you gain a couple things. Like the the Stoic readings, those are all each one is a letter, and I can talk for twenty minutes on each letter. But they're four pages, five pages, six pages at max, and they're very short. And I think his style is something that is very appealing to our generation because our generation can't really read a book for more than 30 minutes, doesn't have a great attention span. So he's really tailor-made for this generation to teach stoicism because of how he wrote and his writing style is so eloquent as well. So just my brief thoughts on Seneca, but very, very underrated. And I think somebody who we maybe should put on a pedestal for trying to 
teach stoicism to this generation. And I would agree. I would say Seneca, you know, I would say in my opinion, and I know for you, Seneca is underrated for me. Um, and you definitely have read more of the letters and obviously more times than I have. Um, Seneca, that's the thing about Seneca is he actually, his letters are advising his friend um, how to be a better Stoic, right? You mentioned that Marcus Aurelius doesn't really mention how to be Stoic. It's more of his journal. And Seneca's letters are actually about, how, like, you know, ethics, morality, um, the universe and stuff. And what's interesting about Seneca is you mentioned his writing style. I've, I read somewhere that Seneca was one of the more actually almost emotional writers, not and not in the sense that his emotions were straying away from the message, but you can tell when you're reading his letters that it's it's just genuine. It's very true. It's very heartfelt messages that he's very passionate about. And in my opinion, I would I would all probably agree with you that he is underrated because I've definitely explored more of Aurelius than I have of Seneca. And usually I see Aurelius on the face of Stoicism, right? When we, we see other podcasts or we read other examples, I usually see Aurelius on the face, you know, of a thumbnail or of a cover. And Seneca kind of, I feel like, can fall into his shadow sometimes. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Seneca's story when he was, you know, banished and stuff. He has a very amazing story. If you don't know that, I would definitely encourage you to check it out because Seneca was honestly, he is amazing, truthfully. And he's, I would agree, he's very similar to you. And I didn't really realize that until you mentioned it. Um, we had a talk, it's kind of dumb, but it was like, I was Marcus and you were Seneca and we were like, oh yeah, like we're kind of relating to these guys, like blah, blah, blah. But it's cool. Um, speaking of underrated, I think we talked about, uh, the next person to talk about is Epictetus. And I think, I would say in my opinion, Epictetus is even more underrated than Seneca because I think in my opinion, the, the way my mind works, I see Aurelius, Seneca, and then Epictetus in terms of popularity. Um, and I'm not basing the under, he's not underrated because he's not as popular. I think he brings a lot of very valuable quotes and insight that isn't really brought, you know, as like a first or primary source. People usually use Marcus or Seneca first. And, but a lot of Epictetus's quotes on what it means to be a good Stoic, he has, he has a lot of quotes that sort of seem to repeat themselves, but I've never also with Epictetus read something where I disagreed with. And that's sort of why I appreciate him is because we actually quote Epictetus very, very, very frequently in our podcast, almost more than Marcus Reilly and Seneca. Like he is up there for us. He is on that equal platform. So I think for us, we bring that attention to him, but I think overall as a Stoic is underrated. And so it's it's ironic that why he's underrated is because there aren't that many works. Epictetus, you know, Seneca wrote letters. Marcus Aurelius wrote a journal. Epictetus was not somebody who wrote anything down. He learned the school of Stoicism and he taught. And all of the kind of quotes we have from Epictetus, all the teachings, are are things that his his students wrote down. Like for example, in Crition, which is like the most commonly well known Epictetus work, was written by a student. And so, it, yes, it's gathered from his teachings, but we don't know if that's 100% accurate because it wasn't Epictetus writing them down. And think, I think you're right in terms of that popularity ranking. It does go Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus. And that's just simply because of like the sheer lack of volume that we have from Epictetus. But Epictetus, I agree, is underrated because, you know, Seneca was a very wealthy statesman. Marcus Aurelius was a very wealthy emperor. 
Epictetus was just kind of a normal dude. He started out as a slave and he made it to somebody who was able to teach philosophy, learn philosophy, which obviously means he wasn't doing too shabby for himself. But Epictetus is kind of the historical example we have of somebody who started out very, very poor and somebody who wasn't just like this vastly wealthy, successful person, but he still practiced stoicism and he still was very grateful for life. And I think that's a valuable example for people that we kind of do overlook simply because there just isn't a volume there of teachings similar to Seneca or Marcus Aurelius. But those teachings that we do have are of equal value. And so that's why they're underrated. Maybe somebody who doesn't come up your first thought of Stoic philosopher, but Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl is a personal favorite of mine. Somebody who was a Holocaust survivor, and then he turned into a psychiatrist. Um, founded Logotherapy, which is still used today. And wrote one of my favorite uh, books ever, which is A Man's Search for Meaning. One of the best books I've ever read in my life. Uh, right on par with Seneca's Letters from a Stoic. Right on par with Meditations. Right on par with Epictetus's works. But he's very underrated because of the fact that he is not always associated with the school of Stoicism. Although we can see, clearly see Stoicism within his written works. And I think when looking at the atrocities of the Holocaust, he was able to recover with his family members being killed and being sent to a concentration camp. All of the atrocities of the Holocaust happened to this man. And, you know, you know, I think he, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to word this like delicately, but he recovered from such a great atrocity that he's a great example to our generation who we have nothing similar to the Holocaust going on, especially in America. And yet we, thankfully, and, we're not saying we should clearly. No, however, Yeah. yeah. But there's nothing on par with that. That was one of the worst, if not the worst, human atrocities of all time. And he was able to recover, found this school of psychotherapy that is one of the most scientifically based, effective schools of psychotherapy techniques and do such great things with his life that I think he's an inspiring example of something that's more modern and we can greatly use his knowledge, even still, even still. So very underrated. And I would absolutely agree because his most famous quote, if you look it up, you look up Viktor Frankl, most famous quote is, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Now, Viktor obviously didn't claim himself to be a practicing Stoic, but that quote is about as stoic as it gets. So you cannot claim yourself, you know, to be a stoic, but you can still live stoically. And I think that's exactly as you mentioned, you know, he went through the Holocaust, which is a terrible, you know, atrocity that happened. And he was able to make something of his life and, you know, kind of use, I wouldn't say use the trauma to like be better, but he was able to move past it and do something when, you know, and this is not really blaming a lot of people, but a lot of people who went through that, I'm sure couldn't because emotionally it was, you know, very terrible. So what Viktor Frankl did is really just an example of him living out what it means to be stoic, living out that quote that he says. And that's why also I appreciate him is because uh, he does, he practices what he preaches, right? He can preach that. And then you can see very clearly he did that. He chose his own attitude in any set of given circumstances, most like arguably, the worst circumstances a person could ever have, right? And so in that, he did. And you introduced me to Frankl. I had actually never really heard of him before. You know, I kind of knew who he was. 
But like you said, he, you know, he's very accredited. He started the, um, I think it was called like logotherapy, I think is what it was, uh, which is very interesting and I actually need to look more into. But yes, I would agree. Viktor Frankl is um, underrated. Moving on to a uh, more modern Stoic, which many of you have heard of. Shout out to the Daily Stoic Podcast. Uh, it's another great Stoicism podcast. Um, is Ryan Holiday. And Ryan Holiday, for those of you who don't know, is the host and the founder of the Daily Stoic, both the podcast and the brand itself. Um, and I would say that he's appropriately rated. And I think we can both agree. We both agreed on this one. But he, uh, he has a lot of coverage. He is very well known. Most people, when they think of Stoicism podcast, they think, you know, Ryan Holiday, the Daily Stoic. I believe it's the most listened to podcast on Stoicism on Spotify and probably Apple Podcasts, I would imagine. This guy, you know, he's very well versed in what he does. And I think we actually looked up his life story at one point. Didn't he drop out of school? Right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he dropped out of school. And then what did he do after? Do you remember? He dropped out of school and I think he just immediately went towards the podcast, I believe. Um, No, but I agree. Appropriately rated. I think the same way that we should give credit and give Zeno his flowers for starting the school stoicism, we should also give Ryan Holiday his flowers for bringing it into the 21st century. He did that in a very effective manner and introduced stoicism to a new generation really, and has done a very, very good job of applying teachings in a modern way. I think that the issue I have that's making me not say underrated is there are times and people have pointed out these examples where obviously you're not going to be a hundred percent a perfect stoic, but Ryan holiday seems to not always practice what he preaches. Um, now we obviously have lapses and we have weak points and we're very upfront about that, but Ryan Holiday, it seems like, gets more into like the internet figure and the influencer type of thing with Stoicism at times, not always, in a way where it's just kind of, here's these 10 tips, but maybe I don't do them. Um, just kind of the, I'm just going to make content to make content type of mindset. And we've talked about in past episodes how I don't like that from Stoic podcasts, especially because it gives Stoicism an improper reputation. But Ryan Holiday has done a good job incorporating Stoicism into the 21st century, and it's launched a wave of new podcasts like ours. And so we obviously have to give him his appropriate credit. Moving on to our final Stoic philosopher that we will be giving a rating today is one that I am not that familiar with, I'll be completely honest, but Cato the Younger, another one where not a lot written by him. He was more of a Stoic practitioner than anything. He was just described as Stoic. His autobiography written by a different man, uh, a historian at the time, uh, was described as Stoic. But Cato, I think, is underrated for that reason. The same reasons I listed out for Epictetus, not a lot of volume of works that we can look to and say, hmm, Cato said this. Like, interesting. Let me go apply this to my life. And I think that is actually very cool for a stoic i think you know you obviously have to be a teacher but you don't have to be a writer writing down all of your thoughts and i think cato was a very good example the standing up to julius caesar standing up against corruption i think he was a very solid real life example of somebody who was just living those principles to the fullest and he maybe he didn't feel the need to write them down or write a book about it or teach next generations but 
that still doesn't mean we can learn. That still doesn't mean we can't learn a lot from him. And so therefore Cato underrated. Yep. He and explore more. Yeah, I actually, I, I very much agree. And I, I quoted Cato actually a while back um, in one of our very first episodes, I remember. And I don't remember what the episode was, but we were, I was talking about, um, he was very into practicing more than talking about it. I would say, you know, Marcus Aurelius has a quote, you know, waste no time arguing what a good man should be, be one. And I think Cato really embodies that more than anybody. And he, so uh, Cato essentially was a Roman senator. I think he was actually born in Italy, but then he ended up going to Rome and he was a senator. Um, he came before Marcus Aurelius. I think it was around like 95, 92 BC, I want to say. Um, Cato was known for his honesty and his immense respect and upholding of tradition. And like you said, you know, he went up against Julius Caesar. And what I brought up a while back was, you know, a lot of leaders, a lot of generals, they they kind of separate themselves from the soldiers who uh, – just like the basic soldiers, right? The the generals are kind of up on his pedestal, is very respected. The thing with uh, Cato is when they all, you know, went to bed and you think like the general has his own special tent or his special place to sleep, you know, it's more comfortable than the soldiers. The thing about Cato was that stood out is he slept on the exact same, you know, tent or the ground, you know, in the same tents as his soldiers. He He was on an equal playing field. And that's that really stood out to me because what he's doing is he's not trying to be better, right? He's not saying, oh, because I'm a leader, I'm above these people. And that I think ex embodies exactly what a stoic leader would look like is someone who, yes, they speak out and they speak for the people. They, they can be the forefront. They can be the face, but they don't put, deem themselves to be better. They still see themselves as part of a community. And so Cato is very underrated and we haven't talked about him in honestly months. It's been, it's been a very long time since we brought up that name, but for that reason, I would like to say he's, um, he's underrated. And then I met, okay. So, uh, these are not technically Stokes. These are just philosophers, but they are very famous. And I'm going to start off by saying they are overrated, but the three, you know, the infamous trio, the, um, the Trinity, Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, I think that when people think philosophy, this is exactly who they think of. And it's a very, it's very fixed view of philosophy to only think of these three people. And now I guess I could be sort of a hypocrite because we think Stoicism, we typically think of three famous people. However, Stoicism is a type of philosophy. It is not the only philosophy. And when people think of philosophy as a whole, it's typically you know, dumbed down to Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. Now, I have read Plato uh, this past semester, and I will say he's definitely got some good insight. But, and I've also read some of Socrates, but it is very, it is a very overrated, they are overrated for sure. There is a lot more to Stoicism than just, or not Stoicism, to philosophy than just these three philosophers. And there's definitely things they've said that I agree with. And there's also things that they've said that I just cannot get behind. So for that reason, I'm saying they are overrated because they sort of represent philosophy as a whole, which I don't necessarily agree with. Were they definitely worthy you know, of praise and being recognized as philosophers? Absolutely. But to represent the face of philosophy as a whole, I think makes them a bit overrated because they really, I think the Stoics, and this is biased, but I think the Stoics offered more. But yes, that's my opinion. 
so interestingly enough, I'm, I'm going to do them separately, but interestingly enough, I think we can actually derive in a straight line from Socrates to Stoicism, the path. Um, Stoicism, especially ethics, and if you look at um, Aristotelian teachings about ethics, both are very concerned with virtue, and I think Aristotle and Socrates especially is where Stoicism got a lot of its roots from, so I think that it's tough to overrate all of them for that reason. Yes, do we need to definitely broaden out the definition of philosophy, and especially within education, read more than Plato and Socrates and Aristotle? Of course, I think that it's very valuable to read more than three authors, especially when they were just direct students of each other. It's a very skewed view of what is such a broad kind of knowledge base when it comes to philosophy. Now, I will say Plato, to me personally, is overrated. I think if you read a lot of like his metaphysics teachings and his abstract views on the difference between like the real world and like this high, plain, ethereal world, um, I don't really necessarily agree with those things. And I think Plato is known in a lot of circles for being wrong about a lot of things. Now, can't discredit him. He, he was a student of Socrates, took down a lot of Socrates' teachings. He taught Aristotle. So very important kind of line leader for philosophy, very important in the founding of Stoicism. However, his individual teachings can't really get on board with us. So Plato, overrated. Socrates and Aristotle, appropriately rated. Both of them appropriately rated. Um, we always talk about Socratic seminars and um, kind of that Socrates' logic. Aristotle with his virtue ethics, very, very similar to Stoicism. Now, obviously, they differ on how you get to that virtue, but very similar. I love virtue ethics, love discussing virtue ethics, um, but both of them appropriately rated because they get, like you said, they get a lot of, lot of credit. So even while I do think their teachings are good, the credit they get is insane. So I'm going to begrudgingly say appropriately rated. Now, moving on to our final category, which are stoic concepts. These are concepts that you can practice uh and are most commonly cited as kind of stoic things. So we'll start off with the pendant I am wearing, which is memento mori. The concept. I took it off. I also, we have the same pendant. Yeah, I took it off. This is a concept of remember that one day you die. This is something I've gotten, I, I, I'm, I can say I've gotten pretty good at applying is, you know, and you can personalize it. But for me, it takes the form of, I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I don't know if tomorrow's not guaranteed. So one day I want to do something that makes somebody else happy and something that makes me feel f fulfilled and full of purpose. And so if I do those two things, I can be happy when I, when I go to bed every day. And it's a very, very simple rule to live life. And it's simplified a lot of things for me. You know, I do one act of kindness a day, just kind of naturally pops up. And then I do something for myself where it's go to the gym or do some investing, something that gives me purpose. And it's a very, easy, easy, simple concept that I think people here remember that one day you die and they're like, oh, that's so morbid. That's so dark. Why would you think like that? But trying and implementing that over the course of a year, it's such a great concept to live life by because every day is made better because you emphasize that I can't wait today. I can't be lazy today because how do I know that it's not my last day? So something that even though, yes, it's said everywhere, there's pendants for it. It's kind of that stoicism hustler culture thing. Still something that's underrated because if you apply it properly, it pays dividends for such a simple concept. Yeah, and this is something that you 
preached more than me, and uh, especially in, in the beginning when we started bringing it up. And I would say I would rate Memento Mori as appropriately rated. Um, I would also agree. And I think there, there. So there's this brand. Uh, it's called Mentality, and they they do a lot of. Um, you know, they, they preach some stoicism. It's it's not fully stoicism. It's more of like a motivational page. But they have a lot of, you know, shirts and stuff that's based around stoicism, amorphity, memento mori, and the, the Latin quotes. But I think the thing about memento mori, uh, it's a good tool against procrastination. And that's sort of why I really appreciate it is because the idea of remembering that you are die, that, that you are die, that you will die, and that you are mortal, and that your time is limited. It sort of compels you if you're driven enough, and if that hits you deep enough, to take action today. And I think that leads to a more, you know, productive and fulfilling life. So yes, I would agree that it is appropriately rated. Um, I think our next one was Amorphity, the love of fate, and this one's good. Uh, I think this one actually might even be underrated. I think it falls under the shadow of Memento Mori sometimes, and that's no discredit to Memento Mori, but Amorphity, the love of fate, this is really important. And this is one that I know you definitely talk about a lot because um, you bring up a lot of Latin phrases, which is great. And um, the thing about Amorphity that is good is it basically says that everything that happens to you in your life is including, you know, sufferings, goods, bads, hardships, uh, is at the very least necessary. Right. And I think this is great. This is my favorite concept because we often see, for example, struggle as bad and amorphity says, well, actually it's necessary. You know, you're going through this, you have to love your fate. So everything you're going through is necessary to make you a better person and the person that you want to be. Um, I would almost say this is one of my favorite Latin phrase is love of fate, uh, amorphity, because I think accepting not in this, the, I think uh, it can be kind of be skewed, you know, the love of fate. Oh, like God's plan fate or what kind of fate? I don't think it matters uh, which way you look at it. I think regardless, fate is your path. Your path is your fate. And so loving the path that it's going to take to become the person that you want to be and accepting everything along the way is what is going to be necessary. Yeah, I'll just add on to that. I think when you talk about morphity, you talk about fate. Fate is, you know, virtue is living in accordance with nature, according to Stoics. So fate is, this is what nature has decided. So if you, you know, stub your toe, silly concept, but nature decided, hey, you're going to, you're going to stub your toe. And so you can't really get angry at that or get frustrated. For for me, amorphity is properly rated because I think it you, you highlighted it a little bit. It's it's a bit broad strokes, where it's you know anything that happens to you, throw it under the guise of amorphity and love that thing. And I think it can be misconstrued to mean that you have to be apathetic to a lot of things that are going on with in your life. Like amorphity, some issue happens within your personal life, within your social circle, or something. You don't step up and try to resolve the conflict between the two parties because it's just bound to happen anyway, right? Just using one example. But amorphity, I I don't trust my my generation to really learn these concepts well just reading the Latin term. I think that Ryan Holiday has done a good job explaining what it means in depth. I think we've done a good job explaining what it means in depth. And I think it is properly rated because it can be used as a tool similar to Memento Mori to just be acceptant of 
everything that happens within your life. And that makes it a lot easier to go through your day to day. Obviously, if these minor inconveniences, you say, oh, well, that's just going to happen. You know, get angry over it makes your life much easier. But I think because of how vague and broad just love your fate is very easy to misuse or misconstrue. And I've definitely seen personal examples of that. And so that's why I'm going to give it a proper rating. Now, the final, final term that we're going to go over is one we used last week, primatatio malorum, which is just, we talk about how we want positive visualization. That's just visualizing the bad things that could potentially happen in your life. And this one I'm going to say is overrated. And we were talking about this right before we got on air. While I can see the argument for, you know, hey, I'll just use last week's example. You know, when you get into a marriage or you find a partner, imagine losing that partner so that when that actually happens, you're not devastated and you can mourn them properly, but your life doesn't stop because theirs does or the relationship stops. But I feel if we were just to take it on face value where it's worry about the negative things that can happen in the future by visualizing them, that's not a stoic quality. Worrying about things that are outside of your control in the future or worrying, even worrying about things that are inside of your control when they're in the future and you can kind of change the direction is something that I don't think a Stoic would necessarily practice. A Stoic is practicing, I'm going to live present in the moment, practice these values in the moment, and if something happens in the future, that's okay, right? Because that's fear and that's anxiety. And so I think that's more what it brings and breathes than these negative visualizations help me cope with whatever. I think if you want to be able to cope with whatever happens to you in life, a morphity is a much better teaching saying, Oh, you know, if I lose my partner, that's okay because that's how the world intended it rather than I'm going to continually visualize that I'm going to lose this partner and worry about it. So I think it's overrated. I I think it's interesting because we sort of have different takes on this. I think because it says it's the exercise of imagining things that could go wrong or be taken away. So I agree with you when you say like that can be like fearing and being anxious, right? It's not really a stoic principle. However, I sort of took it in the way that it was acknowledging and admitting that things potentially could go wrong. And so you're imagining a worst case scenario and you're saying, okay, well, if this happens, like, I think it's more just acknowledging the fact that it could happen and and, and it says it helps us it helps us prepare for life's inevitable setbacks. I would disagree. I don't think, you know, any amount of visualization or mental, I guess, preparation for an event can actually prepare you for when it really happens. I mean, to an extent, yes, but ultimately when something happens that's inevitable and that's a setback, it's going to hit you harder than you were expecting because you just were only imagining it. Now, what I think uh, exercising, you know, your imagination to think of what could go wrong or be taken from you helps build a sense of appreciation for what you do have. I would say that it definitely helps you not take things for granted because if you're imagining things that could be taken from you, you're like, oh, well, I really appreciate this because this could really be taken away inevitably at any point. So I'm sort of at, you know, the appropriately rated. I don't, I haven't really heard much about this until recently. Um, and I think that's fine because it's sort of a weird idea. Like you're supposed to imagine all the things that can go wrong and then it'll help you prepare for when they do go wrong. And you're like, well, I think if you are constantly imagining something going wrong, that turns into worrying. However, I'm not necessarily against the idea of 
you know, acknowledging that something could go wrong and preparing yourself saying, well, if it does, you know, like it could happen. And that just helps you appreciate it more. So I would say it's appropriately rated. It's not very popular. And I would say rightfully so. Uh, and I know you said you, there, that was the last one, but there was actually one more that I wanted to add to make it 13 for today. And it's not necessarily stoic based, but it is the concept of Ouroboros. And if you do not know what this is, um, it is a circular symbol that depicts a snake or dragon devouring its own tail. Based, uh, the internet says it's used primarily to represent the eternal cycle of destruction and rebirth. Now, you see this in um, you know Greek mythology, Norse mythology, Hinduism, and my uh, the sort of easier definition, the way of looking at it, is what goes around comes around. Now, I'm actually not sure if the Stoics believed in karma or not, um, but I definitely believe this that the Stoics would say, you know, what you put out there, you're going to get back. You know, there is like, if you do bad deeds, you know, you will have bad fortune. That's kind of how it works. So the idea of Ouroboros is um, that what goes around comes around. So like the snake's tail goes around and it eats the tail, basically saying everything happens in a cycle and it's an eternal cycle. Uh, and I personally thought this was underrated because, and it's not Stoic, but it's just a concept as a whole, um, just because it's, it's sort of a cooler more realistic representation of what karma is. Um, and I'm not, you know, trying to talk about karma, but I think the idea of what you put out there does come around. It's not necessarily a stoic concept, but it is cool. Yeah. Um, I'll answer that kind of unknown first is that I think stoics kind of believed in karma, but it's not a part of the school. I think it, and it's not necessarily a clear answer, but I think karma in the belief of, oh, if I just do good things, the, natu the nature should just naturally reward me for those things, not a stoic mindset. But believing in cause and effect, right, where if you surround yourself with positive people and you do positive things, you're more likely going to have a positive mindset and have positive outcomes. If it's logic-based, then yes, it makes sense in the school of stoicism. But if it's very dependent on nature just simply being fair or just to you, not really under the school of stoicism, no. With that teaching out of the way, Ouroboros, uh, something I've seen before, maybe something I'm not really familiar with. I do think, yes, it's a cool image. I'm just going to say appropriately rated because it's not something where it's necessarily like this big philosoph philosophical concept, but it's cool teaching, cool message, maybe not directly applied to stoicism, but uh, yeah, appropriately rated. So, and one final topic we have that Another Stoic concept, not necessarily a Latin term or a Greek term, but journaling. Journaling is something we talk about all the time. You journal, I journal, big part of both of our lives. Um, I think we both do different forms, but I'm going to say properly rated. And the reason for that being is that it, we've seen a resurgence. Many people journal, and I think its emphasis is appropriate currently. It's not too much of a focus on it, saying that you need a journal all the time instead of living. There's not too less of a focus on it, saying that journaling isn't important. I think it's properly rated, and I think that my favorite aspect of journaling is how malleable it is. We both do two very different forms of journaling. Same thing with like meditation. Um, and you can have different focuses, different types, different mindsets going in. Journaling is such a personalizable tool that I think is very helpful to if you're trying to 
become a stoic or simply live a better life, chronicling your ideas and actions and what you want to correct and improve on and what you thought were your strengths as a very, very good way to do that. And always a good way to maintain self-awareness. So journaling is going to be properly rated for my final rating of this episode. Yeah, I think the when people talk about journaling and the people who do journal discuss uh, the benefits, I would say, yeah, it is appropriately rated. However, I think overall journaling is underappreciated um, because I think it's hard unless you've been consistently journaling for a while to understand what the benefits of it are. I think people expect, you know, oh, I journaled twice and now I'm like mentally clear. It's not really how it works. It's sort of the process of, you know, consistent reflection that makes you feel better over time. So I, the thing about journaling that's so amazing is you can have, you know, all these ideas and they feel kind of, you know, jumbled up in your brain. You have a lot of things going on. And as soon as you journal, even on the first day, you just feel better because you put your ideas out somewhere on paper that wasn't in your mind. Uh, that wasn't up in your mind. So I would say I think journaling is kind of underrated because I don't think enough people do it. But I think, you know, as it's talked about, it's appropriately rated because people can acknowledge that, oh, yeah, like the people who do the, the people who do journal are saying, yes, it's, you know, it's amazing. And absolutely, I think that's appropriately rated. But I think more people could definitely be journaling. And it's going to look different for everybody. Like you said, you and I journal differently. But we're both getting the same benefits just because it's a personalized tool for mental reflection and building mental fortitude. So I think with that, um, I don't have anything else to add. Do you have anything else to add? Uh, No, I think it's a good episode. And if you'd like to do more of these types of rating, overrated, underrated, kind of gimmicky, gimmicky, but very fun for us to do. Very fun to take a look and say, well, we've read these authors. We've practiced these concepts. How do we feel about them knowing, having our knowledge and personal applications of most of these concepts and reading of most of these people? So if you'd like to see more of this content, let us know and let us know what you would like to see rated next. With that being said, this has been this week's episode of the Gen Z Stoic Podcast. Thank you for listening as always, and we will see you next week.